Thanks for joining us. Because we are disciples of Jesus, making disciples in the everyday stuff of life, we encounter hard questions about our faith and the God that we worship. We pray that this series, Question Everything, is encouraging to you. For more information, go to doxa-church.com. Good morning. Man, don't you love the sun? Yes, thank you, Jesus. Uh, Every week, if you've been with us in this five-week series, we've addressed a key question that people are working through in terms of uh, Christianity. And like we, the title of the the series uh, states, Question Everything, we want to be a safe place to ask questions. We want to be a safe place to walk through uh, potential doubts or struggles people have with the faith. And so if you've uh, been with us, I hope this has been a helpful series to walk through some very key and core questions that people often have. And each week we've used a mix of logical reasoning, personal experience, practical application, but most importantly, the Word of God. And which leads really to this week's question, which is how can Christians trust a 2,000-year-old document as the Word of God? And before I answer that question, I want to note that everyone orients their life, regardless of their stated faith, around something. Everybody does. The question is, what do they orient it around? Uh, Some, it's around personal experiences. Others, it's an aggregate of cultural influences. Some, like us, build their faith and their world around uh, a religious document or writings. If you're Buddhist, it's the Tripitaka. If you're Hindu, it's the Shramad Bhagavad Gita, the Rig Veda, the Upanishads, or the Vedas. It's a whole bunch of writings for Hinduism. For Islam, it's the Quran. If you're Jewish, it's the Torah and the Talmud. And whatever your faith or philosophy, you are orienting it around something that you deem trustworthy. As Christians, we orient our lives around God's written word, the Bible. It's made up of the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Torah, and the New Testament, which are the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, the letters written by Paul and Peter and James and John, uh, and the revelation uh, to John the Apostle of uh, to the church. And so those are the, the, the documents, the books that we orient our life wrong. And the question would be today, why do we trust it? Well, there's many reasons. First of all, it's textual consistency. All ancient documents are affirmed through bibliographic testing uh, to, to determine their accuracy to the original. Uh, Bibliographic testing basically examines the overall number of what is called extant manuscripts. An extant manuscript is a manuscript that was written as a copy of the autograph, the original. Uh, We actually have no originals of any ancient documents uh, existing today. All we have is the extant manuscripts, the copies from the original. And uh, as people test the legitimacy of an ancient uh, document, a a work of antiquity, they ask, how many extant manuscripts do we have? And what's the distance, the time, from 
the, the autograph, the original, to the extant manuscript that we presently have, the copy. What, how many years passed between them? It's interesting. You, you may go, man, I'm bothered by the fact that there are no originals left um, of any documents of antiquity. But I was talking to Donald about that this week. He said, actually, I wonder if that's God's way of saying, I'm not going to let you have the originals because you tend to make gods out of everything. Uh, and so you probably would be worshiping that instead of the God of the Bible. So who knows why God has not allowed us to have the original autographs. But we do have incredible incredible evidence of plenty, plenty of documents, manuscripts that support our confidence in the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, Bible. In fact, there are over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts in the original language. 5,800. There's over 18,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts in other languages that were translated into another language so other people from other languages could also have access to the Bible. And the time span of the, from the original to the extant, the, the copy was a, a, that we have is uh, 50 years. Not very long. In fact, if you were to just take that, the, the earliest next uh, ancient document in terms of period of time is 400 years. So uh, the Bible's 50 years. Homer's Iliad is 400 years. Now let me add one more thing here. The Old Testament has 42,000 manuscripts making the combined total for Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts which we base this Bible on 60, uh, 66,000 manuscripts that we have to base our Bible on. That's a lot. In fact, the very next best document of antiquity in terms of number of manuscripts and the, the fewest number of years from the autograph to the copy is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad has 1,800 manuscripts and a span of 400 years from autograph to extant Manuscripts. So just, just that alone uh, makes the Bible not just stand head and shoulders above all other documents of antiquity, but I would say mountains above in terms of the, the bibliographic test, the evidence needed to really affirm how close to the original is this. Pretty remarkable. Now, in 1947, they discovered along the Dead, Scree the Dead Sea, uh, 11 caves. Now, they since discovered a, no a 12th cave this year, actually, uh, that uh, contained uh, jars that preserved uh, documents that were basically manuscripts from the Old Testament that are very close in proximity to the original. And as they found them and discovered them and compared them to the actual Old Testament, they found that every single book of the Old Testament was represented except for Esther and and in their representation, the accuracy was 99.5% to what we presently have in our Bibles. Pretty remarkable in terms of the accuracy. And the 5.5% discrepancies were primarily punctual, punctuation. Pretty remarkable finding. Uh, the New Testament itself, when compared to the originals that, that uh, we found, is 99.7%. Uh, accurate in its uh, comparisons. So pretty, pretty remarkable statistics, at least for textual cons consistency. Uh, that's not enough, but let's keep moving. There's also historical reliability. The Bible 
especially uh, its historical accounts, have proven in every single archaeological find to be accurate. When they discover a city or a particular well or whatever it may be that they, they dig up, they find over and over and over again, the archaeological finds continue to confirm the biblical historicity in terms of the accounts of, event, of events, famous events, to be consistently accurate. In fact, Every single archaeological find only makes the Bible more trustworthy in its accuracy in terms of its account of historical events. There's been a lot over the years to try and disprove the credibility of the Bible. Many, 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 many studies and and works done to try and undermine its credibility. And what I've found is the very question how can we trust in a 2,000-year-old document? Almost sounds like it's so old, how can we trust it? And I would say, it's so old, how can we not? It's continued to be, stay the same, faithfully stay, stating the same thing, even though many of its topics are very controversial, but people haven't gone and said, let's change it to fit the culture. No, it's the same from when it began to where we have it today, that the people that were the early church read the same things we're reading. To me, that says a whole lot about God's ability to preserve this and keep it as his word to us. In all the attempts to undermine it, uh, none have succeeded. Anne Rice, author of Interview with a Vampire, who was an atheist who came to faith in Christ while doing research for her, her book, Christ the Lord, out of Egypt, was amazed herself at how weak the arguments were from those questioning the historical Jesus and the validity of the scriptures. Here's what she says. I got this from the uh, Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God, which is a great book that I'd recommend you look at, especially if you're struggling or you know you're, you're a bit of a skeptic about faith or you have a friend who might be struggling uh, with skepticism. It's a great book. I would recommend it. But this is what she said in looking at the arguments that question the historical Jesus and the validity of the scriptures. She says, some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around in liberal circles, I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. I've done, tried to do my work in reading widely uh, in terms of skeptics and people who have questioned the validity of God's word and the written text that we have today, and I've yet to find much that's convinced me at all. I just uh, would agree with Anne Rice. God's word continues to win the arguments in terms of not just textual reliability and historical reliability, but also consider its harmonious continuity. Think about this. The Bible is written over a 1,500-year time span by 40 different authors from every walk of life, from king to peasant, philosopher to fisherman, statesman to scholar. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. 
It addresses hundreds of controversial topics in many genres, written from many different perspectives and experiences and moods from people who never even met, in most cases, each other. And yet, 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, writing over tons of uh, space and time, different moods, different genres, tons of controversial stuff in the middle of it, and yet, one continuous, harmonious story of God rescuing people, a story that remains consistent and does not disagree with itself. You know what? These days you can't get a CNN reporter and a Fox News reporter to agree on the same event they were both at at the same day an hour later. Amen? Amen. I mean, come on. I'm watching news going, you guys are in different universes as far as I can see. But 40 different authors, most of who never met and didn't live in the same place, writing in such harmonious continuity, it's amazing. And then, consider its prophetic accuracy. It contains thousands of prophecies that have been accurately been fulfilled. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ alone in the Old Testament that were fulfilled from where he would be born to how he would be born, to the lineage that he would be born into, to how he would live, to what he would do in his ministry, to how he would suffer and die on a cross, to even he, him being raised from the dead. If you just consider eight of them, just take eight prophecies. Micah 5, 2 says, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3, 1 state the Messiah will be preceded. By a messenger, we come to know that as John the Baptist. Zechariah 9.9 says he will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Psalm 41.9 states he'll be betrayed by a friend who ate with him. Zechariah 11.12 says that he will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.13 says the money will be thrown into God's house and used to buy a potter's field. Isaiah 53.7 prophesies that the Messiah will stand silent before his accusers. Psalm 22.1, Zechariah 12. 10 and Isaiah 53 12 all point and prophesy that the Messiah will die by crucifixion. There's just eight. Now there's hundreds, but I've just given you eight. Peter Stoner in his book the, that Science Speaks applied the science of prob- probability to show the chance that all eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one man. The probability was calculated to be one to the t- times 10 to the 17th power. That's 100 with 15 zeros behind it. I don't even know how to say that number. That's a, that's a lot. In fact, Josh McDowell, in trying to make the case of this probability in terms of what it would take for this to happen, said that if we were to take uh, that many silver dollars, it would fill the state of Texas two feet deep. And then suppose, he says, if you blindfolded a man and asked him to wander the state of Texas as long as he wanted, and you had marked one quarter amongst the, the, all the quarters in the state, the, the, the chances that that man would pick up one of those quarters is what we're talking about for just eight of the prophecies about Jesus to be fulfilled. That's remarkable. The textual consistencies make the Bible stand mountains above other ancient literature. The historical reliability must be taken seriously. Its harmonious continuity makes it like no other book. 
and its prophetic accuracy leads one to believe there's something divine about this. The Bible itself tells us this is God's word. God's word to us. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll start in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He was brought up with the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God the other language, uh, the other way to translate it, it's inspired by God. The very breath of God brings it about through his spirit. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. Now it's interesting, this language of, of God breathed or inspired, it, it, it carries with it the very words of God. And this means, to be clear, that it's not the authors or the process that was inspired, but the very writings themselves. Every word in the original was inspired by God. That's why Jesus can say, not one iota, not even a dot of the Bible can be ignored. Peter says it another way in 1 Peter 1, verse 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. And that's one thing I want us to hear today. We would do well to pay attention to this. You would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I know that this is the Bible testifying about itself, but you, if, if you're going to take it seriously, you've got to ask, what does it say about itself? It does say it's the very words of God, the inspired word of God, the word that God brought about. Jesus also clearly affirmed the scriptures. In all of his teaching, he continued to reference the Old Testament, giving validity to its authority for all of life. The Bible itself says some pretty significant things. Not only that it's the very words of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, but also it's sufficient to tell us what God is like, Luke 16.29 and 31. That it's a perfect guide for our life, Proverbs 6.23. That it's pure, Psalm 12.6 and 119.140. That it's true, 119.160 of Psalm. John 17.17. 17. That it's trustworthy, Proverbs 30.5-6. That it's perfect, Psalm 19.7. That it's effective, that it goes forth to accomplish what God intends it to accomplish in your life, Isaiah 55.11. That it's powerful, like a sword piercing into your, into your very soul, Hebrews 4.12. 
12. That is for everyone, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, for all peoples. Romans 16, 25 through 27. That is the standard by which all other teaching is to be tested. Acts 17, 11. That is to be obeyed. James 1, 22. That we aren't just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And poetically speaking, the Bible claims to be sweeter than honey. Psalm 19, 10. Man, would that just be true for us, that we would taste it and see it as the most satisfying thing to our soul. That it's a lamp to guide our life, Psalm 129, 105. That it's food for our soul, Jeremiah 15, 16. That it's a fire that purifies and a hammer that breaks, Jeremiah 23, 29. That it's a sword, Ephesians 6, 17, Hebrews 4, 12. That it's a seed of salvation planted in us that gives birth to life abundant, James 1, 21. And that it's milk that nourishes us like a mother's milk milk nourishes her infant, 1 Peter 2, 2. Now, does all this prove this to be the Word of God? No. I can't prove to you this is the Word of God. It testifies that it's the Word of God. It says that it's the Word of God. It's historically accurate. It's, it's reliable and it's, it's, it's manuscripts. Its prophecies have been fulfilled. I mean, there's so much. But at the end of the day, you know what actually has to happen for anyone to believe this is the Word of God? God has to make it known to you. God's Spirit has to write it on your heart. God has to awaken you and have a personal testimony of how it's changed your life. And I will just tell you, one of the greatest evidences of this being the Word of God is the millions of people in the world whose lives have been radically transformed because of it. Me being one of them. On a daily basis, God continues to change me through his word. More recently, as I was reading, this is about a month ago, I was reading in the word and reading about God directing his people through the, the, the desert by pillar, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that represented his presence with the people. And he, he instructed them through Moses, do not go unless the pillar moves. You, you follow me. You don't move ahead of me. You, you do exactly what I'm doing. You go exactly where I'm going. You follow me all the way. And as I was reading it, like God's word does, God spoke to me. See, I, I regularly open the say, if this is inspired by you, then Holy Spirit, illuminate my heart. Make it known to me. Speak to me through it. Because it's living and active, the writer of Hebrews says. It's, it's able to pierce into my very soul. So I invite the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and make it known to my heart as God's word. And as I was reading that, he, he reminded me of several times in my, my marriage and our family's decisions where I have moved ahead of God, where I've made decisions without waiting on him, without consulting him, without following him. And I, I could give you testimony of so many places in my life where I, I have consequences that I am not happy with because I've followed something other than God in the decisions I make. And when I read the word, he reminded me of that. And he confronted me in that. He said, Jeff, I want you to stop running ahead of me. I want you to, to follow me. Like I instructed Moses to tell the people, don't go unless I go. And don't do something unless I say, follow me. And God's word spoke to my life and once again reaffirmed that this is not just a document, but the living word of God speaking to my soul to bring transformation to my life.
And in that moment, not only did I know that word, but I also knew another part of the Bible that says God is gracious and faithful and he loves it when we return back to him in repentance. And so I repented knowing that he loves me and has forgiven me because of Christ. And so that word worked on my heart to enable me to come back to God in that particular aspect of my life that was not faithful to his word. Years ago, my heart grew cold in my love for my wife. And I remembered the word in Scripture that says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And once again, the Spirit using the very word that he inspired to be written down, spoke to my heart and said, Jeff, remember why you married her in the first place. And as I reflected on her beauty and, and all the things I love about my wife and what originally brought me to her in the, that first day when I was just enamored when I saw her, I, I became full of, of affection again. It's like my affections got stirred up and the word of God spoke to my heart and then reminded me to remember what he gave me in, in the gift of Janie. And as I celebrated who she is and the gift God gave to me and her, my affection began, began to be warmed up again. And I began to tell her again how, why I love her and why she's so special and, and why I don't deserve her and why she's such a gift. That's what God word, God's word does. And he does it to me over and over and over again as I get into it and let him get into me through it and speak to my heart. He continues to transform me by the very real word of God. There's so many stories I could tell you about how he has changed my life and continues to change me from the inside out because of the Bible and the Spirit's work through it. Man, aren't you thankful that God didn't stay far away and just make it a mystery to figure out how to get to him and know him and walk in the way, ways he wants? He didn't do that. He made it very clear. This has everything you need to know about life and godliness and how to know God, the God who pursues you and made it possible so every single person on the planet can have access to God through Jesus Christ as testified by his word. This is a gift God's given us. Thank you for it, Father. And the most compelling reason to trust the Bible is not just because I've been changed by it, because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you respect and admire anything about Jesus, you need to understand, we wouldn't know a thing about Jesus if we didn't have this. We might know a few things. Josephus and some others have written historically about Jesus, but the stuff that everybody loves about Jesus, even if you can't yet come to a place of worship of Jesus, you need to know that you wouldn't even know the things that are great about Jesus apart from this. It testifies to him, and not just the Gospels. The entire Bible is about him, according to Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 24, 27, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus with, after, after his resurrection, he says all the law and the prophets, all, all the, the, the Old Testament is speaking about me. And he began to just walk through how it all was pointing to him all along. I'm going to quote from my book, Gospel Fluency, because Justin got to quote himself a couple weeks ago. As I address this idea that the entire Bible is really the good news story of God's rescue of us. For instance, Adam is a type of Christ in that he was the first human given authority over the world on behalf of God. 
And from his sleeping body, a bride came into existence who was called to rule with him. His hour of temptation happened in the garden, yet he failed to overcome the temptation and sinned. So we have a type and a longing for a better Adam. Jesus is that better Adam. He's the firstborn of a new creation who overcomes the temptation of the devil at the beginning of his ministry, shows his power over sin and Satan in his ministry, and then in the garden of Gethsemane, submits himself to God to drink the cup of suffering on the cross for the sins of Adam and his offspring. And as a result, he goes to sleep, actually dies, and is laid to rest in a tomb only to be raised up by God on the third day. And it is through his body that the church is brought into existence. And now he is the head of the church, the new humanity instead of sinful Adam. Every single part of the Bible points us forward to Jesus being the fulfillment of everyone who fell short, of every longing that wasn't meant, of every expectation that all of humanity has been longing for their entire life. It's met in Jesus. Tim Keller, who's had a huge influence on my life through his work and his writings, wrote in True and Better, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden a much tougher garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, Now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who's at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new and better covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's truly the innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't say, if I perish, I perish, but said, when I perish, I will perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the real true temple. He's the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And the Bible, in all of its 
all of all the authors over 1500 year time span of three different continents and three different languages all tell one consistent story about God coming to rescue you and me without our need to perform or behave or get it right, but rather he will come and do the work for you and me through the person of Jesus Christ. The entire story of the Bible points to Jesus as your savior and mine. Now that makes it so stinking remarkable. It stands above every single document in all of human history. Jesus isn't just the one who brings the word. Jesus himself is the word made flesh, John says. The word made flesh. The one who comes and says, I will not only reveal to you the truth of who God is and and show you how the word was always about me, but I will fulfill every single law in it for you. I will obey on your behalf because you can't, and then I will die in your place because you deserve the wrath of God, but instead I will satisfy it with my own death on the cross to forgive you of your sins, which makes this remarkable in nature because think about it. What other religious document tells you the story of a God who will come and do all the work for you. It's remarkable. Every other religious document says you got to find your way to behave right, to perform right, to climb right, to die right, whatever it may be, so that you can finally get to that state that you are longing for. And this document, this book, this word of God tells us how God does the work for you and me that we might be saved. Now, the human heart and mind is so bent on self-making and self-saving, it could have never made up a story as good as this one because it would have made itself the hero. That to me is one of the most compelling remarkable arguments about the Bible being the very word of God because no one in human history could have made up this story. We all would have made ourselves the hero. And this story is about Jesus. The hero has come to save you and me. It's God's word telling God's story, revealing God's love and grace, leading us to be forever changed by faith in Jesus Christ. So if it's true, which I believe it is, with all my heart, with every, every aspect of my life, I want to put my weight on it. I don't want to stand over it and judge it. I want it to stand over me and judge me. If that's the case, I want to read it. How do we respond? We read it. Family, are you reading the Bible? Read it and then believe it and say, God, where I am struggling to believe, will you help me with my unbelief? And then submit to it. Let it judge you. Let it stand over you. Let it critique you. And then with God's help, obey it. Read it. Believe it, submit to it, with God's help, obey it. Well, family, what are some next steps? If you aren't reading the Bible, can I just encourage you, spend a little bit of time every day getting into God's word. And if you go, man, it's hard. We spend far more time on our phones than we do anywhere else. This this is life-giving. Your phones are killing you. We know that now. And we don't even know all that it's doing to us, but we know it's not helping us for for the most part. This will give you life. This will speak to the core of your being. This will transform you from the inside out. Read it. If you don't have a Bible, walk out with one. We got them on the racks. Please just take one. If you need a recommendation, I recommend the ESV Study Bible or the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, They have a new one out. It's a new Bible out. It's just, they have a great study Bible as well. Both those are really, really helpful in your own study. If you have never read it, start in the gospel. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Pick one of them. Any of them would be great. And just ask the Spirit as you open the Word of God, help me. The same Spirit that inspired this to be written is the same Spirit who illuminates it to your hearts. Speak to me, God, through it. Help me to believe. If it's true, tell me. Show me. And then as you read it, write down the questions that you have and the observations you gain and bring those to a community. Bring those to some people that are also in the Word of God and believe this has authority over our lives. Don't do it alone. And if I could encourage you, start memorizing Scripture. One of the best things that happened to me when I was a brand new Christian was I had an older guy come around me and say, I'm going to just walk you through the, the, probably the key verses you need to memorize in your new walk with God. And so I walked around with a, a packet of three-by-five cards everywhere I went. And when I was waiting in any place, I'd just start going through and practicing memorizing Scripture. It's one of the reasons why I can draw Scripture out all the time in, in a conversation. That, and I believe God's given me a great amount of wisdom because of the way that he's taught me to memorize his word. And then, as you do it, keep asking God, change me through it. Help me where I don't get it. Make things, you know, clearer. Show me. Help me to understand. Help me to respond. Help me to obey. And lastly, if you've been a Christian for a while, I want to just challenge you. You should have read through the Bible by now. And if you haven't, make it your goal to read through the entire Bible. So many people, this is how they read their Bible. It's like, it's like Bible lottery or something. And you know what? You end up reading all kinds of passages out of context and you come up with really crazy ideas. And that's why there's so much stuff out there that's so whack. Because people didn't read the whole story. It's meant to be read as a whole, not as just separate pieces. God put it together intentionally over that 1,500 year span of time so that we would have the whole of God's counsel for how we're to to know him and be, and be able to recognize Jesus as our Savior and then begin to walk with him because of it. Family, are you thankful for the Bible? I am, man. I am so thankful that God loves us so much that he would not leave us in ignorance but give us his very true word that can change your heart. Let me pray and thank God on our behalf for his word. Father, we thank you for the, the good news that we have in the, the text that you've given us, that it points to us not being a savior ourselves, not, not needing to depend on ourselves to rescue ourselves or make up for the things we've done in our life. Lord, we thank you that this contains the very words of God. And you loved us so much that you would have given it to us so that we would not be wandering around in the dark wondering what you're like. And thank you, Jesus, for coming and both affirming it as the word of God so that we can know it's trustworthy, but also for being yourself the very visible display of what the word of God looks like in someone's life. You are the picture of this word being lived out for us because you are the word made flesh. Thank you for doing that on our behalf. Thank you for the hope we can have in you because of it. Thank you that you even forgive us when we have failed to look at this word and live as though it has authority in our life. Thank you for your grace. And thank you that this word even tells us you're gracious to the, those of us who have looked elsewhere. You are so good, God. Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.